All right. Now, I heard a story that was discussed to the Holy Land together with, with his mother-in-law. And in the Holy Land, they were visiting so many places. But then, unfortunately, the mother-in-law died. And so, he, as he was contemplating on what to do, the undertaker said, you have two choices. One, for $150, you can let her bury her body here in the Holy Land. Or for $5,000, you can bring her back home. And so the man said, I'm going to do the option two. I'm going to bring my mother-in-law back home. The undertaker was so confused. I mean, this is not practical. Why would you choose that? The guy said, 2,000 years ago, there was a man who died here. After three days, he rose from the dead. I'm not going to take my chances. It's not so funny, I know. I know, I know. It's just a story. I know. It's not just a story. <laughs> well, when I was growing up, um, we used to have a nativity scene in, in our house. And we have, you know, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in the manger. On one side, we have Santa Claus, the, the sleigh, and the reindeers. On the other side, the far end, there's the three Mediterranean guys with turbans and camels. And Jesus was surrounded by goats, sheep, and cows under the big Christmas tree with the star on top. And I was thinking, is this really the nativity scene? So growing up, I really thought this was Christmas. But then when I grew up, I learned that Christmas really is not with Santa Claus. It's not real. Um, the three guys came much later, and there was no Christmas tree on the first nativity scene. This was only Mary, Joseph, Jesus in the manger. And so I was, I was preparing this sermon this week, and an idea came to my head. So I, I immediately searched the internet, and I typed in Pinoy nativity scene, and this came up with lechon. You see that? That's Pinoy nativity scene with lechon. I think we're not trying to change the story. I think we're just trying to make sure that it's relatable to us. So we want the nativity scene to, you know, to look like us, to dress like us uh, with the Asian theme, but we're not changing the story. But I think in doing so, sometimes it works to our disadvantage because the nativity scene is a a glance, a picture, a story in one scene. And so when we do that, we miss the important details in the story. Uh, the thing is that when we do that, we kind of miss what's really in there in the first place. So the question today is, what's really in there in the first place? What's in there in the first nativity scene? That's our question today. Hey, if you're new here, we're doing a series this whole December. This is the fourth and we're doing the series called Christmas is Not What You Think It Is. So we talked about the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 1. It's all, it's all about the begot, 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 the father of the father of the father. We talked also about the other name of Jesus, which allegedly was not really a name, but a sign. It's Emmanuel. And then last week, we talked about why the story of the birth of Jesus Christ is full of scandal. What Mary and Joseph had to go through to have Jesus. Today, I want to focus on the manger. Why the manger? Why was Jesus born in the manger? What's so special about the manger? And why is the manger good news? We want to start reading from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. If you have your Bibles with you, 
You can follow along or you can follow along with on the screen. It says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. When it's talking about all the world, it's talking about the whole Roman Empire. It's not talking about the whole world like Australia, New Zealand, and the Philippines, and all those countries. It's just talking about the Western world, the Roman Empire. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from a town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, based on this, on this reading, we can actually recreate the original nativity scene. Now, let's start with the original, the capo, the boss. The boss is Caesar Augustus. Now, this guy is the nephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar wanted to start an empire. He wanted to start that. <clears throat> but in doing so, the Senate did not approve, so he was assassinated. His nephew succeeded him on the throne. So this nephew, Octavian, was the first Roman emperor in the history of Rome. Um, he adapted the last name of Caesar, Julius Caesar, and then he was conferred the title by the Senate, Augustus. Augustus simply means revered or reverent. So technically, this guy is Reverend Caesar. You know, just like, you know, the priests and the imams and the fathers, Reverend so-and-so. This guy is Reverend Caesar. Now, because he knew the politics of Rome, he knew that he has to play with the Senate. He has to play with the people of Rome. And so this guy learned the politics. And in his reign, there was relative peace. In his reign... There was what we call the good news. All along, we thought that Christians were the ones who originally started the good news. Now, the word good news, Galion, was first coined by the Romans. The Romans started this, this message around their whole Roman Empire with the idea of Pax Romana or the peace of Rome. When Caesar or Augustus Caesar became emperor, all the messages were brought to all the nations, all the subjects of Rome, and they said, peace of Rome or Pax Romana, this is good news. The good news is that from the time that Caesar Augustus reigned as emperor, there will be no wars, there will be stability, and there will be prosperity in the land. The context of good news, the Roman good news, is about prosperity and peace in the land. That's the good news. But the bad news is that all the citizens of Rome must pay tax. The only way he can bring peace to the land is for him to make this, this empire work. And the only way this empire will work is there will be taxes. And you know what happened? Mary and Joseph had to go all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem for a census to pay tax. This is bad news for, the, for Israel because at this point, that means Israel is still considered slaves like Egypt. Now, if you go to the book of Exodus, you'll find that that story is where it's coming from. Slavery in the time of Pharaoh, in the time of Egypt. Now, slavery in the time of the Romans, in the time of Caesar Augustus. Now, verse 6 and 7 gives us a very specific details about the nativity story. 6 and 7. It says, while they were there, 
in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in squaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, this is kind of kind of a bit confusing because when you read this for the first time, you might be thinking, there was no place for them in the inn. And why is it that the nativity scene is always in the context or in the with with like a shed or in a barn? And so it makes you kind of think that that Mary gave birth to Jesus in old McDonald's place, you know, iya iya yo, with animals and so on. But that's not true. It's not. It's far from the truth. See, the small town of Bethlehem doesn't have hotels, so this is a little bit confusing when you read because there was no place for them in the inn and you might be thinking oh all the hotels were booked they ran out of hotels the small town of Bethlehem does not have hotels during that time Um, if you understand the Middle Eastern hospitality all that Joseph had to do is to knock on the doors of any of his relatives so that means during their time Joseph exactly did that knocked on the doors of any of his relatives, and he stayed, together with Mary, on his relatives. Now, the typical house um, is only one story house with two bedrooms. One bedroom is for the guest. It's smaller. The other main room is for the owner of the house. Here's the thing. The main room includes the kitchen, the living room, some place for work, and and including uh, the place for the animals. Now, let me explain this. This is where they, they do everything. So that means Joseph and Mary were accommodated in the main room where there's kitchen, there's living room, there's bedroom, all in one. On the far side of the main room, there's a place in the corner for animals. You see, in the first century, animals during daytime stay outside. They feed outside. But during night, the owner of the house will have to bring the animals in that corner of the house to avoid, to avoid them being stolen and to keep them warm during winter. So that means if Mary and Joseph were accommodated in the main room, that means they were beside the manger, beside the animals where they were staying in that corner of the house. It's not exactly a barn. It's not a stable. It's just a corner of the house. And so when you read, because there was no place for them in the inn, it it only means the guest room was already occupied. So Joseph and Mary were not accommodated in that place. Joseph and Mary took the corner near the manger. That's where she gave birth. And the owner of the house had to help her. Now, what's interesting here is that it leads us to the accommodation. And the question is, why the manger? What's so special about the manger? Why was Jesus born in the manger? Now, I'm going to have to ask you to put your thinking caps on because what I'm going to about to do is to show you how the Bible works in pictures. Now, it's, it's very hard to do this because when you read the Bible, you, you read that with words, right? But there's a, there's a comic, comic Bible where you, where you read the Bible in pictures. Now, I'm, I'm going to put big pictures so that we can understand where the stories are going. Now, in the Bible, you read bad news and good news, all right? So bad news, if you turn to Genesis chapter 6, you will find bad news. 
It will say the, peop- the earth was corrupt and God was mad. And so he decided to destroy the whole earth and the whole creation. Bad news. Uh, we, we think we're thinking of flood. The good news is that God decided to save some people, the family of Noah, and to save some of the animals to create or to start with creation 2.0. That's bad. That's good news. Now, here's the thing. When, when God decided that, Noah was born. And when Noah was born, his father gave him a name, Noah, which means rest. Noah means rest. The prophecy is about this boy, Noah, who will come and become the rest for mankind. Now, why is this? Why is there rest for the mankind? Why is there there's a need for rest for mankind? See, Genesis chapter 3, there's a story about Adam and Eve who were exiled from the Garden of Eden. And in that Garden of Eden, when, when God exiled them, God said, cursed be the ground. And from then, you will work the ground. There will be no rest for you. And came also Cain. Cain also were exiled further to the east. He will be a vagabond, a fugitive without rest. So there is Noah on the sixth generation. He was born and the prophecy was about this man will give people rest. This is, this is where the ark enters. So you can have an idea of where this is going. When Noah was born, he was rest. So when the flood came, God told Noah to build the ark. So the Hebrew word for the ark is teva, ark. I'm not sure if it's showing there. Let's show the ark. It's called teva. Now, every time you read the story about salvation, about good news and bad news, you think of the story of the ark, which is teva, which is the means of salvation. And every time you think about a repetition of story, you think about this figure of a savior who will save the world, who will give everyone rest like Noah. So there's rest, Noah. There's Teva, that's the ark. And there's flood, the bad news. Now fast forward to the book of Exodus. So that's Genesis, now Exodus. The book of Exodus started with bad news and then it continued with good news. The bad news is that the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. That's the opening line of the book of Exodus. Pharaoh was then the reigning king. The good news was that the people cried and God heard their cry. God saw their suffering and God responded. And so during the time when Pharaoh was doing the genocide to all the babies, uh, the Hebrew babies, there was a certain boy who was born by the name of Noah. Now we're transitioning from Noah to Moses. So again, there was a certain boy who was born by the name of Moses. His mother first hid him for three months. But then when he, she couldn't hide him any longer, he, his mother made a basket out of bulrushes. And he put, she put tar and pitch and made, to make it float in the river. She placed the baby in the basket, made it float in the river Nile, and it was found by the sister of Pharaoh. The Bible also calls this basket Teva or the Ark, which gives you a sort of association with the pictures that God is saving people through the Ark. You're getting it? Are you still with me? And he's giving rest. Now, what rest are we talking about here? Rest because the people of Israel were slaves. 
God wants to give them rest from slavery. And so it's, I kind of give you the, the picture of how God will save the people of Israel through crossing of the Red Sea, going to the promised land to give them rest. Now we're going to skip Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're going to go straight to Joshua. The opening of the book of Joshua was about 40 years has passed and they were given another chance to enter the promised land. But there's only one problem. The bad news is that during their crossing of the Jordan River, it was harvest time, which means it's flood time. The engineers have no boats, they have no bridge, but they have to cross the river. The good news is that God instructed Joshua how to stop the Jordan River, how to stop the flow. So God instructed Joshua to bring the Ark of the Covenant and the priest, the moment the priest stepped on the river, the flow of the river stopped. This is interesting because the Ark of the Covenant is another form of teva. It's an ark. The Ark of the Covenant uh, contains the Ten Commandments and other stuff, but the, the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of God's throne. That means God himself stepped on the water of the Jordan River. Now here's the interesting part. Noah means rest. Moses means drawn from the water, just like the Israelites. Joshua, the one who led the people of Israel, is called Joshua. The name means Yahweh is salvation. So that means it's not just men who are Savior now. It's Yahweh himself who is saving his people, who is giving them rest in the land of the promise. Now fast forward to 586 BC. Now we have three pictures already. 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar marched to Israel, destroyed the temple, took away the Ark of the Covenant. The one most important thing in the life of the Israelites, the Ark of the Covenant, it was forcibly taken and was never returned again. Allegedly, Indiana Jones found it. It was a joke. No, no, he did not find it. All right, allegedly. So it was not found until today. There was no Ark of the Covenant in the temple. It's empty. In fact, there's no temple today. But in the time of Jesus, the first century Palestine, there was the Herod's temple. It was empty. There was no Ark of the Covenant. That means when Luke was writing this story of Jesus, and he was giving us the picture of the manger, he was trying to give us connections between Noah, Moses, and the Ark of the Covenant. The manger looks like a teva. It looks like an ark, which means this will be the ultimate way God will save the world from their sins. What does it look like to you? Well, to me, the, the manger looks like an ark, a teva. Let me read to you verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, why did I say that this is the ultimate symbol of salvation? And why is this related to the Teva? Because of the mention of shepherds. It says, in the same region there were shepherds, and an angel appeared to the shepherds. What's the connection of the shepherds to the time of Exodus? Here's the thing. When the whole family of Jacob went from the Palestine, 
all the way to Egypt because there was famine, Genesis chapter 45. Uh, Joseph instructed his father what to tell Pharaoh. He said this in Gen Genesis chapter 46. He said, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth uh, even until now. Both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. Watch this. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And the whole clan of Jacob were shepherds. That's why they were segregated in the land of Goshen that is north of Cairo, Egypt. So when Luke mentioned the shepherds, it's kind of transporting you back to the time of Exodus where the people of Israel were under Egypt, under Pharaoh. It's kind of giving you an idea that there's another Exodus event in the time of Jesus Christ where Augustus Caesar is the new Pharaoh and Rome is the new Egypt. Are you still with me? This is very interesting because there are pictures that's leading you from one picture to another and leading us to the final picture, the manger of Jesus Christ. See, Moses was the savior in the time of Egypt. He was the savior in the time of Exodus. In fact, before he died, he prophesied about this Messiah, the final savior. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. If you ask any Jew today, their interpretation coming from the Mishnah and the Talmud would say that the prophecy of Moses about this prophet like him is the Messiah. Now, the only problem is that the Jews today do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Christians believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I'd like to pay attention to the message of the angels. Verse 10. And the angel said to them, to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring good news of great joy that there will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And we're talking about a Savior like Noah and Moses and Joshua. Who is Christ. Christ is Messiah, the Lord. Now, let me clarify this. In the, in the story of Noah, it is Noah the Savior. In the story of Moses, it's Moses. In the story of Joshua, it's Joshua. But in the story of the Messiah, it says, the Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. Yahweh is the Savior of the world. God is the Savior of the world. It's not just some human beings or not some superhero. God is the Savior of the world. And then it says, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, if you were a Jew who knows the story of Moses, who knows the story of Noah, who knows the story of Joshua, and you read the book of Luke, there will be no doubt in your mind that Jesus was the prophet Moses was talking about. Jesus was the Messiah. And it might not be seem obvious, but the manger is the proof and the manger is the evidence that, that God has brought about a new Savior to the world. When you see the manger, you're seeing the basket of Moses. You're seeing the salvation of the whole world. Now, let me clarify that. Because, you know, when, when Moses, the story of Moses, when he was put in the basket, he was made to float in the river. So you're asking now, where's the water? Water there. Now, Moses was brought to the river three months after his birth. What you will find is that you will find Jesus 
when he turned 30 years old, he went to the Jordan River, he was baptized. What does baptism look like to you? You will be dunked in the water and you will be drawn from the water. What does drawn means? Moses. Drawn from the water, baptism means Moses. Jesus was baptized. He was giving the picture of Moses. Now, now this is very interesting because when people read the book of Luke, they have no other thoughts but to associate Jesus with Moses. See, the manger to them is not really difficult to see. The story of Jesus is the story of a Savior. And this humble feeding trough has been the visible sign of God's salvation. See, Jesus was not only the new Moses, Jesus was also the new Noah. Why? Because Noah offers rest. And then you hear Jesus talking to his disciples, saying, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, when you hear that, and when you look at the nativity scene, we think of the humble birth of, of our Savior. We think of poverty and abandonment. And sometimes we still think that all the hotels were booked and this heartless innkeeper did not consider the condition of Mary. But seldom do we think that the manger was intentional on God's part. Let me say this. The manger was intentional so that we can see the pattern of God's salvation. The manger was intentional so that we can see the pattern of God's salvation. In the first century Palestine, the manger is good news because it offers a different kind of peace. Augustus Caesar only offers peace without war, prosperity and stability, but nothing more. What Jesus is offering is peace more than that. It's peace because there's forgiveness. Now, I want you to imagine this. Can you imagine the temple without the Ark of the Covenant? Now, this might, be, might seem fuzzy, but in the book of Leviticus, there's a day of forgiveness. It's called Yom Kippur. And the Jews celebrate it until today. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is when all sins are forgiven. The holy priest or the high priest would enter the temple, enter the most holy place, bring blood and sprinkle blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That completes the ritual. The problem here in the first century was there was no Ark of the Covenant. They cannot complete the ritual of forgiveness. And so every year, every Yom Kippur, people keep wondering, are we forgiven? See, from the time Nebuchadnezzar stole the Ark of the Covenant to the time of Jesus Christ, that was 560 years. That means for 560 years, people have been doing Yom Kippur and are still wondering, are we forgiven by God? Because the ritual was not complete. This is what Jesus offers, the peace with God, the forgiveness of sins. Let me ask this. Do you ever get tired of working? Do, do you ever get tired of do you ever get tired of coming out in the morning, raising up and going to work just to pay the bills, just to make ends meet? Do you ever get tired of doing things repeatedly again and again? You see, when Jesus was about to depart, he was assuring his disciples of his presence. 
And then he said, in my father's house, there are many rooms. What rooms? What he was talking to his disciples is that your, their final destination will be with God in that real house of God. And then Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. What was he talking about? Jesus was talking about the ultimate kind of rest that we all have been looking for. Remember the story of Cain? See, Cain killed his brother, murdered his brother in cold blood. And then God cursed him. God said, from now on, you will become a wanderer and a fugitive. That means for life, you will be wandering, restlessly wandering. That's why we need rest. You see, we are like Cain. We are wandering. We are, we are in fact, manufacturing our own kind of peace, our own kind of love, our own kind of community, our own kind of security. But real joy, real peace, real security can only be found in God. And without God, there's no rest. There's no peace. So when Jesus Christ came, he was offering peace. He was offering the peace that we cannot manufacture. He was offering the peace through this manger. Have you ever thought why Jesus claims to be the good shepherd? Why did Jesus say, my sheep know my voice? And why did Jesus say a good shepherd will lay down his life for a sheep? Look at this. If Jesus is the sheep, and we, sorry, if Jesus is the shepherd, and we are the sheep, and then you, you see the teva, you see the manger, this is an open invitation for Jesus to say, I'm the bread of life, I'm the water of life, feed on me. Like what I said, the animals are outside of, of the house during the day, but at nighttime, they are put inside the house, in one corner of the house, and there's manger. They were fed at night. The manger is an open invitation for you to feed. If you are the sheep, it is for you to feed. It's for you to find rest in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 11, verse 18. He said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your abounding mercies in our lives. You are indeed our shepherd who leads us in green pastures, who makes us drink in still waters. You are our shepherd and we know your voice. And so we follow you. Father, I pray if anyone here who can relate to the message, who've been tired, who've been trying to catch up with all the, the things in this life, Father, I pray that you will that you will talk to us in, in a very personal way. I pray, Father, that you will enlighten us and guide us into that place where we call rest. We acknowledge that we can only find rest in you. We acknowledge that we can only find real joy and real peace in you. We acknowledge that real joy and real peace and real security 
can only be found in Jesus Christ. And as we trust you, as we come inside that house, in that corner, and as we feed in that manger, I pray, Father, that you will also feed our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.